From the studios of Boise State Public Radio News, I'm Gemma Gaudet. You're listening to Idaho Matters. It has been almost nine months since the overturning of Roe versus Wade here in the United States. And since then, restrictions on re- reproductive health care have often been devastating for women as we navigate a post-Roe America. LaTanya Mapfret is the CEO of the Global Fund for Women. She's joining us today to talk more about this. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, LaTanya. Thank you so much, Gemma, for having me. It's really great to be here. Thank you. It's only been nine months, huh? It feels like that's maybe in dog years. It feels like much longer. It doesn't it, though? I mean, it really, really does. So with that said, can we just start the conversation um, for folks who may not be familiar with your organization, um, what you are, what you do? Absolutely. Um, Global Fund for Women has been around since 1987. And it was, uh, you know, it was it. Its whole theory of change was that if you put more resources in the hand of women that were fighting for social change, that you would see really transformative things happen. Um, and the founders of the organization are were squarely focused on women in the global south who were not receiving some of what we call the overseas assistance that comes mm-hmm. from these big global north countries like us here in the United States. Um, and it was, can we get a couple of thousand dollars to women who were doing things like Lima Gaboi in Liberia, who was fighting for the peace accord, but didn't have any resources to be at the table, I guess is the best way to say it. And now skip forward to 30 plus years of doing this work. We've given over close to a quarter billion dollars to women to really start good trouble, as our colleague John Lewis says, um, to really be able to resource the work that they do in the community and really focusing on these movements. So most of us here in the U.S. know Black Lives Matter, Me Too, mm-hmm. uh, maybe in the Latinx community, Mionis, uh, Minos, and, and, you know, these kind of social movements that are started by women, that are managed and sustained by women, but are often overlooked as well as um, kind of just they can't get the resources that they need to be able to keep the fight going. And so that's really where we come in at Global Fund for Women. And we are very, very committed to being in solidarity and partnership and providing resources to social movements around the world when they're needed by women. Um, and in a way that is um, respective of the the actual challenges for building, running, and sustaining organizations. So, so I mean, you know, there's so much in there, but I'll, I'll just stop there because that's the big core of it. It cuts across mm-hmm. all of the various issues, whether it's reproductive justice, climate justice, economic justice. Um, we are in service to really follow and to um, make sure we resource these movements because they are what changes our world, and we see a better change coming. So, in today's conversation, I really want to talk about that, uh, the reproductive issues sure. um, that are that are going on here in the United States, um, because I, I think it is an understatement to say that navigating uh, the post-Roe era here in the United States has become more complicated than, than I think that a lot of advocates, um, anti-choice advocates, thought it would be. And... Um, and and so here we are, nine months in, and and I think we are all kind of flummoxed as to how we navigate this. 
Yeah, I, I want to say that um, the, the situation, though, in the United States is a person who's spent more than 30 years working across the globe. Um, mm-hmm. We saw these things, this, um, you know, this sort of fundamentalism, what was happening in the United States was being pushed out with resources across the world. And so we saw that there was a huge fight, a huge pushback. Um, uh, reproductive rights, yes, but also on um, gender, you know, rights. And so mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. were seeing this sort of um, rise against um, social issues, including, of course, gender equality and abortion rights um, creeping, right? You know, more and more resources, more and more organized and mobilized. Mm-hmm. And I think part of our challenge is that we have to be on the other side of that fence we have to be as organized, we have to be as messaged and coordinated and in community with uh, those that work together on these issues. And so some of it I see is not just that it just dropped out of the sky. This pushback has been going on for some time. I joined Planned Parenthood to run their global program in 2011, and it was in full swing. I remember my first day at work, Pence, uh, vice president, you know, most recently vice president Mm -hmm. Pence, but Senator has sent a note to uh, a congressional um, letter asking us to, uh, you know, for all kind of information over at Planned Parenthood and the work that we do both domestically and globally. So I think it's not so much that we didn't see this coming. I think we saw it coming. I do believe that we're privileged here in the U.S. and we thought we couldn't get back here. Women have done such amazing things in this country. We've got, you know, we've we've kind of, you know, been beaten up against the glass ceiling for so long that I think we thought our fight needed to be elsewhere. And so I thought the resources Mm. um, that we needed were not there. I think the solidarity, unity was not there. And so now we're in a position where we're really having to think about how we save women's lives. Um, And that is something we've seen in other countries. There are ways to do that. And I think we have to, in unity, really come together and, you know, as they're calling it now, the push, push back, the pushback. Um, so we can keep um, rights for women. And really, yeah. you know, beyond rights, this is a matter of saving lives. And you've seen the case in Texas. I mean, these are right. things that in a country that has such, you know, medical technology and and quite frankly, an advanced system should not be um, dealing with. So let's talk a little bit more about this, this case in Texas. Um, it made national headlines just at the end of last week. Five mm. women are suing the state of Texas over the abortion ban. And LaTanya, hearing their stories at that news conference, um, first off, was devastating. But secondly, I found nothing surprising in what they said and what happened to them because so many of us know how complicated pregnancy can be, even wanted pregnancies, right? And, and, And bad things happen in pregnancy sometimes. Absolutely. And it's and it can be super commusi- uh, confusing when you over-medicalize it in these ways. I mean, let's be honest, since the beginning of time, women have had to make decisions. I mean, at least we have some technology now. Now, I, I myself got pregnant with twins, of which one um, was deceased and, and, and was, you know, conceivably going mm-hmm. to affect the other. And we've all had to make these choices. We've had multiple miscarriages, um, you know, and I, you know, we've been in countries now where we've seen this type of action. Texas is one of the strictest abortion laws in the world right now. Um, And I've, you know, I've lived in countries where there are women in jail because they had a stillbirth. 
um, or because they had a miscarriage and it was very difficult for them to prove they didn't have an abortion. I mean, that's not the kind of country we want. And so when I look at these ladies, I'm so glad that they're willing to stand up and to say something. But it also makes me think, because if these are the women really at the center, imagine with more marginalized women, women who don't have right. access to lawyers or to even health care. Uh, you know, you think about the South of our country, you know how devastating the healthcare system and maternal mortality for Black women are, it was be way before they reversed, you know, Roe versus Wade. So I think about that. It, it does make me sad because I'm thinking, well, these are the women who can tell their stories and who have come to the center. Just imagine how many women we have on the margins who just can't, um, you know, function in that way, you know, in a public way, um, in a way that requires access um, and resources that they don't have. Do you think, LaTanya, that when these abortion restrictions were put in place, that um, that, that lawmakers truly understood medical terminology and, and what it means? Um, and I ask that because medically, an abortion is a mm-hmm. miscarriage, or they'll call it, you know, a missed abortion. I mean, mm-hmm. I had a miscarriage. I had to have a DNC because I was yeah. not... I was not miscarrying the fetus. So I had to have this procedure. My medical records say that I had an abortion because that is the medical terminology. Yes. And so where does all of this come into play now that we are in this post-Roe America and and people want to say, well, no, that's a miscarriage, right? Anti-choice. Say, well, that's a miscarriage. You can get that procedure done. And it's like, no, no, doctors use the medical terminology, so they cannot do that or they will risk yeah. their license or, or jail time. Yeah, and just imagine how incredibly politicized this has become. I mean, it's so true what you're saying. Um and, you know, and just as I mentioned, you know, women have, um, you know, from the beginning of time had to make some decisions around, you know, if they're having children, when they have children, if this is the right time to have children. And then this gets complicated by the medical um, terms, as you said. I don't think people um, understand completely, especially lawmakers, but nor do I think they should have to. This is not an mm. issue that should be inside of our legislative bodies. This is an issue that should exist and stand completely um, in your uh, doctor's uh, room. And if you want to seek counsel, whether that's religious or personal, then that's on you. But this is a medical issue. And and most people know um, that abortion is one of the simplest um, procedures. I mean, you know, it's even simpler than I, I think you know, Gemma, you know, than having a baby. So actually mm-hmm. delivering a baby is more deadly for women than um, the abortion services that they get. So it's not that it's a difficult um, procedure. So I, I think that legislators somewhat know that. But then it's this political, you know, politicizing it in the way that we have, criminalizing it even. Um, uh, it's that if that's a part of our structure, and I think it's like a decoy in some ways, just as a woman who has been working on these issues, I look at all the issues for women that we have, that we talk about, that we really need some support in the legislative bodies on. I mean, violence for women is just one, you know, easy one to throw out there, but mm-hmm. there are other complicated ones. But instead, we allow and we we have a system that wants to focus on this one. 
And you have to ask why. You, you have to ask why. And of course, you know, our toxic patriarchy, you could talk about colonialism, you could talk about fundamentalism and all of these things. But the reality is the issues that really belong with women and always have are now being put on the, the election ballot. And that's where I feel like we're just going in the complete wrong direction. There are mm-hmm. going to be ways that women still, even still with all of the nonsense, are going to be able to make these decisions and make them happen. But it's mainly the women with resources who can be able to go to a place where they don't have to deal with that and or work with a doctor who is, um, you know, been a family doctor for long, you know, so mm-hmm. there's all these things that happen. But what really, really is going to be the problem and what gets caught up in this political um, conversation is the women that don't have that ability, the women who are going to end up in jail, the women who are going to have to make decisions that ultimately kill them. And that's why, Gemma, we have to um, we have to really push back on these uh, ridiculous political things that we're living through. I saw the, you know, the breakdown from the attorney general about what's a miscarriage and what is not. And it just it made me so angry. I'm like, who the hell are you to sit here and say that? Um, and so that's that's where I am. And I'll, I'll stop there and let you ask your next question because I get <laughs> truly emotional. <laughs> truly. Well, and I and, and can we talk about, you know, when, when we look at the restrictions here in the United States now, this really goes against global trends um, about the decriminalization of of abortion laws to the point that the United Nations and we might and, and I and I think it's fair to point out a lot of mainstream media has not talked about this yet. But the United Nations is decrying. <laughs> Um, what's happening in the United States, saying that it is that, that it is a violation of human rights, go, saying to the point that here the United States goes and says there are human rights violations in countries across the world, yet the United States is now doing the exact same thing. Oh yeah, I mean the rec- I mean there. I mean, and, and despite the U.S., there's still a, a global tide. I mean, the World Health Organization gave recommendations about. Um, the very mifepristine uh, that is now Walgreens is in, you know, conversation mm-hmm. about, you know, that they don't want to sell it in the States or whatever. But there's actually been, um, you know, for a couple of years now, you know, a few years, should I say, recommendations about telemedicine for abortion pills and, you know, the, the efficacy of them. Even at Planned Parenthood, we've done studies, you know, decades ago about what this means for women and in a vein to actually take care of their health. It had nothing to do with politics. Right. So we know. These things are safe. We know there are ways to have um, safe uh, procedures and and that women of all economic, cutting across all social and economic walks of life can be able to do this. Um, And then we started seeing because of this, really, you know, because of this global tide, um, we started seeing countries even like Mexico, who for years had only had um, legal abortion in, in Mexico City starting to move in another direction, Argentina, and even in Benin, you know, so we're talking about countries that are, you know, culturally and religiously, you know, way mm-hmm. further um, to to the right than we are here in the United States, starting to liberalize, decriminalize um, in ways that now we are sort of, you know, we're more like Russia and Iran now, you know, we're, we're in that part of the, you know, the world on on gender, I would say gender equality across the board, because abortion rights is only just a piece of what is generally the the situation for women. Um, there are books, um, and you probably have read them, Jim, that it talks about the advent of the birth control pill, 
um, mm-hmm. with all of its complications, but it opened up women to be allowed to do a whole lot of things um, in economic and social life that they hadn't been able to do before. And I think here again, you're seeing not just a pushback on abortion rights, but you're seeing a, bush, a pushback on gender equality, on sexual equality. Um, and I think that's where our country is starting to look more like the Russias and Irans than um, these, you know, these countries that are really moving the needle on ensuring that women have a, a space in our in our our present and our future um, that's equal. LaTanya has also written a new book. It is called The Everyday Feminist. It's out now. So LaTanya, I, I want to talk um, about about your book because it's really sure. about these grassroots feminist movements. Um, so first off, tell us a little bit about the book and, and why you decided to put pen to paper and, and write this. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. And it was... It, Partly before we went to the break, we talked about, you know, my my concern about gender mm-hmm. equality and so seeing this pushback against gender rights, not just here in the United States, but especially in the United States. And I felt like my role at Global Fund for Women and really the privilege to have lived in more than 15 countries. I work with the United Nations and and I was a foreign service officer for the U.S. Um, and I got to meet, you know, incredible women around the world who are probably no different than the women who live right beside us, who are always at the PTA meetings, who are nursing elderly people around the community, who were feeding people during COVID. Um, but these women are often um, underlooked. They're often um, expected to just do this work and we don't resource it. And so from my from my, you know, where I sit in the world right now, it was really important to me to not only tell their stories, and my hope is that people get comfortable that these type of women not only can run, you know, sort of the local community food bank, but they can actually do so much more. And we talk about some of them. We talk about Tarana Burke, you know, who, who uh, founded the Me Too movement and, you know, where she was in the world and why she did what she did, but also how we as a community um, really sort of didn't fund her organization as wild and bold and great as the hashtag was, what was more important is the work that she was doing with women in their homes, survivors who needed support and help. But that part mm. kind of got truncated because people were like, oh, Me Too got so famous. We don't need to fund this woman doing this work. And my hope is that this book is an opportunity for us to talk about people who we've all met before that uh-huh. we know do this kind of, you know, sort of rallying and movement building in our communities. But when it's time for them to get the resources to keep moving, um, we don't do that. And I, I think about that in part, you know, when I talk, when we talk about the rollback of row, it's like we got complacent. We were like, oh, this, this movement is good. You know, we're, we're okay. And so we'll stop mm-hmm. funding that and look at something else. And that is the the kind of thinking I feel that will continue uh, to, to, see setbacks, whether that's in legislature, economic growth, uh, social growth in our in our countries around the world. And we have to change that thinking. We have to resource these incredible women um, when they need it, when they're emerging, when they're maturing and when they're sustaining. We, we have to stay with them. We have to walk with them and we have to continue to resource the work if we really want to see a different world, Gemma. You know, your book has been called an essential text for feminist advocates who find themselves in an increasingly challenging political and social environment, um, calling it a a practical blueprint to social change. And Latanya, I, I think that that's where so many uh, feminists, so many activists are right now. Is is that how do people make that social change? Right? It is. It seems very daunting. Um, so, in your book, what are practical steps 
do you see people can do just in their everyday lives? Because I think, you know, even as you mentioned the Me Too movement, that was so big, right? And it was, and you feel like, well, you know, someone, you know, sitting at home doesn't necessarily sometimes feel that they can make much change. Yeah. No, and I, you know, and I'm probably one of those, you know, <laughs> which is the reason why I, I wrote. I think you're doing a little bit more than that. I know. And it's like, you know, you can, um, but you can get, you know, burned, you know, burned out as, as people talk about. And you could, you can kind of start getting down if you look at where, you know, the, the rollbacks are happening. But I do believe that more, um, more of us are everyday feminists, including men, than we think. I think we're out there doing that work. We're trying to resource that work. I and I do offer in the book, and in fact, I try to offer some suggestions to, uh, you know, to, to sectors like governments, um, uh, mm. bilaterals and multilaterals, like corporations that are interested in ESG, um, that are for profit and what they can do. And of course, I offer some steps to philanthropy. You know, both individual family foundations, but also some of these larger foundations in the work they do. But I'll jump to what um, the question you're asking, Gemma, about what, you know, what we can do sitting at home. And and part of what I I try to say and encourage in the book is continue what you're doing, because I don't want to I don't want to pretend like people aren't doing anything. You're doing this with the podcast and so many other things. We're all doing something. And I think the book is a a, a, really is an opportunity to say thank you to these uh, women, especially um, who are doing this work and to encourage them to keep doing it. And in fact, to encourage them that this book is not only going to allow them to keep doing what they're doing, but it will also help sort of garner uh, more resources to continue to do this work. I also ask that people look around their communities and and find the everyday feminists and their organizations and movements um, and join them um, because there is a um, I think there's one thing to just sort of write a check, but there's a whole other thing to be in community and in solidarity and really showing up at the meetings, um, really showing up at the marches, uh, really showing up at the court steps, you know, what we just saw in Texas in the last week. Um, these are things that I'm, I'm recommending because they make you feel good and feeling good and taking care of yourself and finding joy in that work will then help you continue to do what is necessary to make transformative change. I also say, um, Gemma, that advocacy is not a bad word. Um, a lot of uh, folks don't want to fund advocacy. A lot of people see it as I want to just fund services. But it is that advocacy that really changes hearts and mind. And it's that boldness that drives change overall. And it also, when you think about advocacy, is about telling your story. And so I, I talk about that. And, you know, and I, I I could go on, but I think those are some of the more important ones that I talk about in the book, because what what I'm asking is that we don't just accept promises to change, right? Mm-hmm. That we change mm-hmm. the whole system. And in order to do that, we have to look at the work that these everyday feminists is doing as a necessary part of a, a world that we want and not just charity. And so that means you go in and, that, you know, whether it's in your community or whether it's across the waters and communities and issues that you care about. But that being involved and staying involved means that we have to be in solidarity and march with these women as they try to make the differences that they are doing in their um, in their countries and their communities. You know, before um, you and I had this this interview, um, you know, the the whole uh, boycott of Walgreens came up um, in the last couple of weeks. And I and, and as I was looking at your book and preparing for this interview, I thought, isn't this interesting that we're talking about these grassroots 
uh, feminist movements. And, and I think it would be fair to say that the, these, these calls for boycotts of Walgreens really was a grassroots movement. Mm, um, and, right. And, and, and I, and I wonder if we hadn't had things like social media, I mean, I really started seeing this blow up on TikTok with, with mm-hmm. people saying you need to boycott Walgreens because, um, you know, that the, the organization deciding not to sell a certain abortion drug in states, uh, where abortion is now illegal. And there has been such a tremendous pushback, uh, that some of, some other organizations that were going to do the same thing, uh, said, said, said they wouldn't do that. Um, and so I'm curious as to maybe how these things go hand in hand in, in the sense of that truly is this grassroots movement where people not just use their voices, but use their pocketbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets right to the core of it. Right. And I, and, and, and then community, I mean, and you know, this, this, uh, strategy. I mean, I even just was, as you were talking, was thinking about South Africa and how I got started in um, social justice work was way back in college, you know, with um, divesting my college, University of Maryland, um, or insisting, should I say, you know, that they divest mm-hmm. from South Africa, which they did ultimately, maybe not at the same time that I was there, but it was like a, a constant um, fight and using, you know, pocketbooks is, uh, you know, and getting right to profits is going to be a great way to do that as we live in this sort of capitalist global economy. Um, you know, that being said, I, well, first of all, I live in California. So I have to say, I'm really, um, happy to see that the governor's office said, I think at the end of last week, that they're going to, um, look at their contract with Walgreens. Cause I think they really saw a, a, a way to sort of bypass some of these politics and actually help women. And so, and support women that are making these decisions. And so now that we have this, um, you know, they're, you know, I'm not sure where they are and why Walgreens sort of um, uh, is refusing to dispense. And when they say in the 21 states, when you actually have cover of the administration, the federal administration, so it's like you could do it, now you're choosing not to. And that's what I think people are pushing back against, um, you know, what's what it all means. And they're about to make a whole lot of money. Let's not, you know, let's not pretend um, by being mm-hmm. one of the few in this country who can dispense mephipristone um, to people. So the choices they're making um, really are suspect. And I'm so happy to see people jump on it, you know, and we know that social media can be horrible in some ways, but um, it can also be a tool for organizing and getting out necessary information. So I'm happy to see that. Those that are pushing back against it, Gemma, um, I think are the same people that we just talked about in the first segment, right? You know, these are people who are trying their damnedest to try to make sure that women don't have uh, these uh, choices available to them. And so this is just another way of digging deep. And I also think, quite frankly, the opposition is um, scrambling because people are pushing back, um, people in, uh, you know, state governments, even our federal government. And so in order to sort of meet that challenge, they're really trying to go in. Um, and, and, you know, and somehow Walgreens has gotten, um, you know, because become a symbol for that. And I agree we should push back, even if there are, um, you know, potentially, uh, arguments in other places that they'll do it in these states and not state these states. I think we should pressure them to to pick a side um, and, and do what they need to do to support and help women everywhere. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us uh, about this. Really appreciate your insight. 
Thank you, Jim. I thank you for allowing me to be here and with your, um, you know, your colleagues in Idaho. And I hope that um, we can talk again. Um, and I hope that folks go out and, and get the book, The Everyday Feminist, um, because I think it is in some ways, while it's instructive on transformational social change, I think it's also a feel good book of which most people will relate to the women who are doing the things that I found in many of the parts of the world and hopefully bring us all closer together. So thank you. Well, thank you. We've been talking with Latanya Mapfret. She is the CEO of the Global Fund for Women. Her new book, The Everyday Feminist, is out now. Thanks so much for listening to Idaho Matters. Boise State Public Radio and Idaho Matters are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gemma Gaudette. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies.